12-year-old me finds me unbearably unfunny. Do you understand? Like 12-year-old me would watch <laughs> 40-year-old me and not think this was comedy. He would think this was absolutely awful. I'm Jordan Kistner, and you're listening to Thresholds, a weekly series of free-ranging conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterwards. Quick note. I, Jordan, am taking a brief break from hosting this spring to work on some other projects. And while I am off mic, we are really lucky to have Mira Jacob occupying the interviewer seat. Mira is a novelist, a graphic memoirist, and an all-around brilliant mind and excellent conversationalist. She was our very first Thresholds guest, and I have never stopped wanting to listen to her talk. I also was excited by who she wanted to talk to for these shows. I'll be back later in the spring, but until then, Mira's got the host mic. So there's this story about Dave Chappelle that haunts me, and I think it haunts a lot of us who write into the humor and horror of being a dark-skinned person at this current iteration of Earth. Um, so the story is that he was once doing a skit that played into a Black stereotype, thinking it would make the other Black people in the room laugh. But the loudest laughter was coming from a white man and it shut him down and it shut him down so much that he stopped being able to write for the television show that he was he was on board to write he had to leave his career for a while there are all sorts of things about this um story this kind of warning which i think much of it might be hyperbolic but the part that really stays with me is the conundrum right how do you write humor for your people? How do you expose their vulnerabilities when it's kind of more than likely that the white people who exploit those vulnerabilities, who use them to maim and murder and jail us, might be the ones that laugh the loudest? So into that whole conundrum in my brain walks Hari Kundabalu, who the New York Times has called one of the most exciting political comics in stand-up today and whose 2018 Netflix special, Warn Your Relatives, was the first thing to make me laugh, like really honest-to-God laugh after Trump was elected. It also, by the way, made my kid, uh, who I think was, like, I don't know, 10 at the time, run around the room going, Indians, Indians. Hari has continued to make me laugh as a guest on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and on his TV series, Snack vs. Chef. But the thing I love about him is the way he handles this conundrum, which is how do you, how do you make that kind of humor happen when it's so necessary for us? And I think the way Hari does it, which is with this kind of wild sweetness underneath there's a hard-hittingness to everything he does, but there's also this really deep kind of beautiful heart under everything. That, to me, feels like a real way forward. Comedy Central started airing um, HBO specials, old HBO specials. This is when Comedy Central had, like, limited content. And so they... I had a Margaret Cho and a Janine Garofalo special. There were, I think, half hour, one hour specials that they just kept repeating. And on the smaller uh, uh, epiphany is seeing Janine Garofalo read notes on stage 
which is like, oh, I can, I'm not restricted to just what's in my head. I'm able to bring things on stage and that could be part of a, part of what I do. Um, and that's okay. And it doesn't have to just look one way. And, you know, there's something about the, like, exposing the creative process to some degree that is okay right like um, a like a technological reassurance right a technical yes. reassurance we're like yes this is a way that i can do this this is part of the process yes but the big one is margaret cho because you know up till that point it's not that i hadn't seen south asians or asians on screen but when they were on screen they were always very stereotypical and it was clearly not meant for us to consume whether that's the apu character whether it's any thing that that showed South Asians or Asians like if it was a, a film made from a Western lens about South Asia then obviously the protagonist was not going to be you know South Asian if it was um, a film about a particular era you know or about a World War II or something you already knew how that was going to happen like you know there's the classic examples of Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany's now I didn't see that movie at the time but like that wouldn't have been as shocking to me then because that's kind of the kind of stuff you saw like um and stand-up too like the idea of, you know I, there was tons of racism in it even stuff that aired on television so i kind of i loved the art form but i was also well aware of the fact um that no one really stood out for me and it wasn't something i could do not from a lack of desire but there was no indication that that avenue would be made available to me you know and when you're a kid, like your whole world is what your your friends, your family and what you're consuming. That's everything. And you're talking about something here that is also really complicated, which is that there is no us in the audience. Right. Right. There's no idea that we would be watching or that we would need to see ourselves. Oh, or yeah. If, we right? we were. We there was an us in the audience and that we were we were like very passive receivers of the stuff. But there was nothing we could do about it. And there was nothing that, you know, the, the only thing I ever saw us do about it, and us I'm using very broadly, was, you know, I'd see East Asian American groups, Asian American groups protesting, you know, you'd hear stories about that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously the response you want is to be able to to match, you know, Fire with fire. Like, if you're going to depict us like that, then this is our chance to respond or our way of depicting ourselves or whatever. But you don't have that. So all you really have is this this ability to say that's not OK, because you're not going to let us show you what is OK uh, and, and what we really are. Um, and even at that young age, it was like just clear. Like, I grew up in Queens, New York, and it's this incredibly diverse place. And I don't just mean in terms of like race and culture, but like every way. A, a place could be diverse in terms of immigration status, in terms of wealth. Like I went to public schools. I mean, there was a range there that, um, you know, I don't think I realized how much about the world I was learning just by like being in that environment and seeing so many different cultures and seeing how different families operated, like all that stuff. But what I did know for for sure is that this is not reflected in media. And that's a hint at the bare minimum that we have less value to to people um, in the world, or at least in the world I could see. Okay, how did that, can I just, I want to just slow down just a minute to ask you, like, how did that 
register for you at 14, at 15? Like, where did that live in your body? It was like two different things that are happening. One, for me, it was like, I'm not attractive. I do not look a certain way. It's not that Indian people couldn't be attractive or be seen as attractive, but they have to have certain features. And and I have very South Indian features. And there is no way this can be interpreted as attractive by anyone. So there's there's that there's that, you know. Mm. And I say interpreted just because I feel like that's changed a lot over the last like 20 years. I just feel like there's um you know, there's some there there. I feel like with more exposure to different types of faces, I think human beings are just like, you know, like it's it's like the other side of why did I find whiteness so attractive? Why did I find white blonde women so attractive? Because that's what the media is telling me are like the most attractive people. Right. Yeah, You know, you're saying this and I'm having this I'm having a visceral body response to this, remembering that when I would fantasize, you know, how you fantasize about what's going to happen to you when you're 14 yeah. and 15. In my fantasies, I was me, but I'd never looked like me. Wow. Yeah. Like you're saying this and I'm remembering the other Mira that existed. Yeah. And she was, actually, she was like white with like sort of reddish hair. Like she wasn't, you know, she wasn't a blonde because I, I kind of even knew I couldn't be a blonde. But the other Mira somehow was still on the right side of the skin tone line and could, and was maybe a little different, but not in a way that would offend anybody. Do you know what it's like? It's like you're dreaming in the language that you spoke. Do you know what I mean? Like when you're in another country after a while, when you start picking up that language and it becomes so natural, that becomes the language of your dreams. Right. And sometimes in the way you think. And so that this, it feels like that, like, okay, the language that we were given visually did not include us. Yes. Yeah, so you could never see yourself. Yeah. You 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 would have to see yourself through uh, relating to white people primarily or or black people or sometimes Latinos, but if those are the images it's like when I was frustrated and angry about race, who did I have to look up to, right? It was like musicians, mostly black musicians. Mhm. Um, black authors, black athletes, right? There's that. And, and so the idea of rebellion and standing up for yourself was was black, right? And when you look at, you know, what is seen as attractive, who do you have crushes on? What is of the most value? It, it's whiteness, right? You know, looking at it now, I think about who was seen as attractive when I was, you know, younger. And I'm like, they weren't attractive. They were white. That's it. Like, like Nick Nolte is white. <laughs> Nick Nolte, even in his twenties, was just white. You know, like I remember Kamau W. Kamau, one of my best friends. He had a show where he talked about that in terms of, you know, Denzel, like had never won the sexiest man of the year, only won it once or something like that. And meanwhile, Nick Nolte won it. You know what I mean? Like that's, <laughs> that's the <a> standard. <laughs> it's like that, but that's what it is. It's like how we always talk about how like. When you're when you're a person of color, you can't be good. You have to be great to be considered good. Right. You know, you can't be mediocre. Like Nick Nolte as the face of beauty to America is like to me, like the peak of mediocrity. Like this is somehow, <laughs> you know, and, and look, I feel bad because I'm like shaming Nick Nolte. But at the same time, I'm like, 
dude, you've been given a lifetime of confidence. I think we can we can Take it back do that a now. Yeah, a little yeah. bit. Also, like Nick Nolte, I fantasized I was some version of you because there was no version of me for me to fantasize about. So maybe we can peel that back a little right, bit right. too. Like I had to be you, Nick Nolte. Right. Let's, right. let's <laughs> let me have myself back a bit. So I mean, I I totally see what so what you're saying about like how you dream. Like that's so incredibly painful, and I suppose. You know, when you're watching film or you're watching anything and you're like, okay, so these white teenagers, these white teenagers are having this experience. It's very different than my experience, but it's relatable enough because we're human beings and we're teenagers. Yeah. And it's like, okay, how do I filter this? Because we're never going to be given something that hits right on the nose or close to it. So going back to like seeing Margaret Cho, you know, I'm seeing a Korean American woman speaking like I speak with a quote-unquote American accent, um, talking about her family being immigrants, talking about navigating the world, about race, about things other than race, and she's being given, like, like respect. People are listening to her. People are laughing at the jokes she's making. People are, are willing to consider her points of view valid. And she's not Indian American, but, you know, an Asian American woman saying like all of a sudden you're like, why can't I do it? Like this to me just opened up my brain. Like how, how did she do this? Like, you know, obviously she's very funny. You know, I've always found Margaret incredibly funny, but it's just, wow, to break through. What does that mean? Like, how did that happen? And so that planted the first seed that made me want to do stand up, that made me want to write, that made me even feel like, I should be writing jokes in my notebook because I'm going to be using them eventually. And did you start then? Yeah, when I was 17, I started a comedy night in my high school. I started writing jokes when I was probably 15 or 16. But, you know, I set this comedy night up so I could do stand up, you know. In your high school? In my high school. I called in Queens. it I called it comedy night. Um, <laughs> I was so worried about other parts of it. I wasn't so concerned about the name. And, you know, it, it was me hosting it segueing to different acts which were like other teen comics who i realized years later were mostly just ripping off stuff on television amazing and then a bunch of sketches we did which were mostly us ripping off old snl sketches and then i closed with 45 minutes um which you know i don't remember all of it um luckily the tape cut out so maybe so i don't have an actual record of it but i remember that a lot of the jokes were stereotypical a lot of them um, were accented. I was basically following the model of Apu that I knew. And there wasn't a great deal of authenticity. You know what I mean? The jokes, the ones I remember writing, I'm like, that's a well-structured joke. You know, like I felt like, oh, I knew how to write jokes. I just didn't have anything to fill into the into the formats. You know what I mean? Because Apu is made for the white person in the room to laugh. Yeah, but I love The Simpsons too, and that's also the only example. You know, it was, and it wasn't just Apu. It was, it whenever you saw a South Asian on screen, yeah, it was always an accented comedic role, right? Like the 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 weird cabbie or a, a, a doctor with a funny accent, or like it was always something that was very one dimensional that was used as a punchline. It was never, you know, I, you know, when you th- watch The Simpsons, like you almost pray for carl like carl he's black but like 
there's no distinguishing features. Like there's no sense that, <laughs> you know, uh, white people took all these stereotypes about black people and put it on that character. He's just like a guy. Right. He's somewhat nondescript and boring, but oh, to have been Carl, you know what I mean? To just have existed in the world and not been clearly the the source of laughter for just sounding the way you sounded. Which, you know, which, again, like people say, well, Apu is a really funny character. It's also really well written. It eventually does get really well written. But try to listen to those jokes that Apu makes without the accent and see how many of them hold up. Always, always the test. Always the test. And if if it doesn't hold up, you already kind of know. There's a bunch of stuff that does, but I think there's there's definitely a heavy reliance on othering, right? Of like, this is like not us. Look, look at how they sound. Um, yes. And you, of course, discuss this in your, you know, in your movie, in the documentary, The Problem with the Poo. You, you discuss this thing in sort of great detail and and incredibly um, intelligently. And I love so much of what you're saying. I'm so curious about the moment where you stopped making the joke at your own expense in a way that was harmful. That leads to epiphany number two. Oh, let's go epiphany number two. So I decide to do stand-up in high school. I, I go start doing it in college. Uh, there were open mics and things. There were no comedy clubs or there were no other you know, places to go. I was the only show in town. And I liked it. I liked the fact that I was in, uh, you know, I was, at Bowdoin, I was at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. I'm a Queens kid in Maine. I stood out like a sore thumb. There's nothing I could, not even a sore thumb, just a brown thumb. I don't, I didn't need to be sore. <laughs> like it was just that, that's a, that's a different, that's a perfectly fine thumb, but it's a different pigment. Why is that thumb that color? <laughs> um, so it was, you know, that was shocking coming from Queens to be in a place with so much wealth and so much whiteness and a type of whiteness I'd never really seen, you know, kind of a waspy New England prep school, boarding school whiteness with a different set of standards I didn't understand. Okay, and then just to ask again, because I am so curious about that, where does that, how does that make your body move through the world? I'm very aware of my skin in a way that I'd never felt before. Very very aware of how others perceived me in a way that I'd never felt before. Can I ask the weirdest question, but it, but I, I sometimes feel like it boils down to this for me, and I don't know if it does for you. Did it make you f- feel bigger or smaller in rooms? Both. Like it, it depended on the context. Yeah. Like if I was at a if I was at a party, it made me feel really small. It made me feel like nobody was interested. You know, I wasn't seen as attractive. I wasn't. Uh, you know, like the, when I'd be asked where are you from, then I felt way too big in the room. Because then all of a sudden it's like, okay, I do stand out. I am somebody people are aware of, but in this way that, you know, it, the thing is, it was never where are you from and, fo- and a follow-up about anything other than that. You know, that's always the thing people have to understand about that question. If that's not either a starting point to something that isn't about just your experiences in India or Indian culture, or if it isn't like, you know, if, first of all, it being the first question to me is strange. Because when you meet people and you try to be friends with people, you look for things you have in common, generally, right? Things that you find interesting about them, but that you also find like, oh, I there's something here that I see in myself that makes me feel comfortable. Yes. 
And so to start with difference and then move away from there and feel like, okay, I've got what I needed is so like transactional in a way. It's like, I got what I needed. Let me move on that. Like, there's no way you feel like more than an exhibit at that point. Yeah. And it's, it's like, um, it also, I feel like it directly translates to why are you here? Mm hmm. And and that's the curiosity. You don't make sense in this context. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, like, I've you know. How did you get here? And, and some people, and there were other like Indian kids there, but I I noticed they all navigated in the world differently. Like, mm. and and they all had different survival skills. There were some who were part of like the Indian cultural group, and they had an affinity group. And I would go to those meetings with the other like four South Asian men and one Puerto Rican woman. And because wow. at that point, you're just like, anybody's welcome, hey. obviously, we're, we're looking for numbers. <laughs> Close and, enough. And she and she was wonderful. Um, <laughs> and so like, you know, there's there's that and there's the just move away from brownness as much. And I would see that with people who wouldn't make eye contact with me who were brown, who'd look away when I would give them the head nod like, hey, we're both here. What the hell? And they avert their gaze. And I'm like, oh, like I'd never experienced that before. Until yeah. I went to Maine, I'm like, this isn't a way to get through this. I'd never like anticipated, you know. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then there were those who were like, just, which is kind of connected to the last thing, like whatever activity they did, whether it was sports or something else, like that's your identity. Like, just be so that person that the other stuff doesn't, you know, factor in. And so, you know, it was a, it was kind of fascinating to be in a space like that and the idea that i couldn't control how i was being viewed which is why i wanted to do stand-up on college i didn't expect it to do, that's why i wanted to do stand-up in college like, i didn't expect to do stand-up in college i just figured i'd do it in high school i'd get it out of the way and that's over you know because i'm not going to be a professional stand-up comic like there was no reason to believe that and so when i got to college it was like i hate this I hate standing out in this way I can't control. And I'm like, if people are going to look at me, I'm going to control that. So I'm going to do stand-up because I love stand-up. And if I'm going to get attention, it's going to be attention I want to get. So it was your coping mechanism. It was my coping mechanism. But the things I was saying on stage was, you know, I just wanted people to like me, right? So I'm doing like the same stereotypical stuff and, you know, calling myself a token and like saying stuff I thought would work in this context. Like you know? the sort of the Russell Peters. Um... I think it's different with Russell because Russell in Canada had very brown audiences mm. and very Asian and South Asian audiences. Like you can, you know, it, so much of his base and his strength comes from that. So I understand like watching Russell when I was that age, it was always kind of like this double edge, like this guy's succeeding, but it's frustrating because I don't know how this is being received. Yeah. But then you start to realize like now I'm like, his audiences were us, you know what I mean? And then it's like becomes an issue of like, so our people are laughing, but the risk that other people might enjoy it on terms that we don't like, how, you know, it's like such a weird kind of, you know, thing. But to me, it was like, it was... I guess there was elements of that, but it was it was more basic than that. You know what I mean? Like it, it was, and again, the jokes are fairly well written. Like I remember enough of them to to know, like, oh, okay, that you know, I knew how to write. So, but like after nine eleven happened, that would be moment two. Um, moment two was nine eleven happening. Like I oh. went to college, all that stuff happened. The epiphany wasn't um, I should do stand up here because I'm in this space. You know, that's just, I feel like it's an extension of like, uh, this is the kind of stand up I'm doing. 
It's, oh, wow, what am I contributing? Like what, like I, I'm an apolitical being at this point. I'm not looking at race critically. I felt annoyed by the Apu character because clearly it was like, this is a stereotype that sucks. That's all we get. But looking at a bigger lens of what impacts that would have outside of my own life, the idea that 9-11 happens and people are being detained and deported and beaten up and there was no sense of who we were in the world. Because in, in Queens, like there were many of us. Not to say hate crimes didn't happen there, which they did, which broke my heart in a way that is, is so, was so new. But like, there were enough of us where there was an understanding that we existed. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, people don't see us as anything other than either a threat or harmless. There's no middle ground there. We're either harmless and laughable or a threat to national security. And uh, there's so much wow. between those two points. And yeah. You know, and I'm there making these jokes. I'm like, I am scared and I'm angry and I'm frustrated and I'm questioning everything I thought I knew about the world and our country and how things work. And then I'm going up on stage saying my parents sound like this, like this is what what, this is what it is. And it made me so angry with myself. And, and, you know, I did stand up that year and I, I think I tried to introduce things that were a little bit more thoughtful, but I really, I didn't know what to say and I was too scared. Like I didn't want to, like the people I had to perform for were white people for the most part and it was working and I didn't want to ruin that, you know? And this was one thing that helped me get through this experience at a college where I didn't feel comfortable. And so it's like, okay. You know, what do I do? Because I don't feel good about the thing that was making me feel good. And I want to do something more, but I don't know how and I'm scared to. And that leads to uh, epiphany, uh, epiphany number three. Okay. Um, so it was the summer of 03. At this point, like, I'm attempting to be more political. I'd gone to college at Wesleyan University for a year as, as at my study away I had been around other artists. This was after the Iraq war who were doing critical things with their art form, not necessarily comedy, but I could see like, oh, these, like, these are young people who are like trying to figure out ways to make music that say things. Or, you know, I I remember taking a a pop culture class and we were learning about Antonin Gramsci, Gramsci. Um, And I wrote a paper about Keith Haring and it was really about, he was making art that was for people and the tension between like trying to make money with your art and what people were expecting from him and his desire to mass produce work in any public space because he knew it had influence. And, and the Gramsci kind of fed into that in terms of like cultural capital and what that, what that meant. So I'm understanding some of this stuff and what I was doing in the context of like this academic, like, what impact am I making, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wait, and how would you define that? What What is it that you knew at that moment? That the art I was making was having an impact. It was reinforcing images, not not challenging them. It was definitely something, anything that has, that was in the public space, what you said or what you didn't say was political. Like even withholding things, keep staying away from it has a political meaning because that means you're not talking about something. And and you are, are not challenging anything, and you are lulling people into a sense of comfort, which might be fine, by the way. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but know that's what what you're doing. There's always going to be, you know, something you could have said, and maybe that's not your art form, what you do well. But for me, it's like I wasn't even thinking about how to, like I was 
too scared to even make those big swings. Yeah. Um, so it was around that time. Um, I started trying to write stuff that was kind of political, but what would happen is I would write like a really stereotypical joke and then something that was kind of thoughtful. So it was kind of this dissonance because, okay, I'll lose you on this, but I'll get you back on this, you know? And I did that for a few years. That's in, in 03. Okay. Yeah. So you're doing that and you're performing this. Are you feeling the moments when you're losing the audience? A little bit, but I was at Wesleyan, so people would just clap. <laughs> you know, okay. that's another thing I realized, like, in a very progressive spaces, like, you would just get claps that would fill the space, which eventually I would really not like because it, you know, as an art form, that's not the desired. But, you know, I don't mind clapping if it's a setup to something else and, and it throws people off. Yeah, but it's a little bit like a, it's like a shoulder tap, you know, it's like a pat on the shoulder. Yeah, like, good, I'm not making art that's supposed to do that. Yeah, you know sure. what I mean. It means that the art is is functioning, but not as as you hoped. So that summer, I'm in O three. It's DC. I'm in DC. I'm interning for Hillary Clinton. Um, I'm in the mail room, getting you know, it's kind of a, like it's a really boring job that has a really it's like a a really boring book with an exciting cover. Do you know what hold I mean? Hold on, hold on. We just went to I'm interning for Hillary Clinton as though that was a normal progression of events. How? how? What happened? Oh, yeah. I, I yeah. It'd been, I mean, the previous summer I'd interned at the Queens District Attorney's Office Bureau of Hate Crimes. Um, what? And, yeah. Uh, hate crimes and gangs. They combine the gang division and the hate crimes division, which. Because those are the same things. OK, anyway, <laughs> the joke I used to have is like, you know, either way, minorities are getting stabbed. Oh, <laughs> so. You know, so that was like that was part of that like intense feeling of like, oh, my God, like even in at home, we're dealing with this stuff. And then, mm -hmm. you know, I wanted to do something that was, you know, I was moving in this world of politics and civil rights and wanting to create change. And, and, and certainly my political views had been much more radical than they had been. And so, you know, I applied for an internship. Um, at that time, it was called the Indian American Center for Political Awareness. And I got put into Hillary Clinton's office and, you know, it was just the mailroom because she had like 80 different interns and uh, most of them weren't from New York because she was like a celebrity senator, you know? Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the the most meaningful thing that happened in the summer wasn't even interning for her. You know what I mean? Because that was just kind of, it was cool and it was a great resume filler. And I got a picture from my parents, which definitely in some ways bought me time. Yes. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, because you're because you're he's with Hillary Clinton. I'm the one that the work for Hillary Clinton. Uh-huh. So that, you know. I mean, those are Indian parent bragging rights oh, for sure. Oh, for that sure. picture. That picture was on display for years in the living room. Yeah. It's not doctor, it's not engineer, but it is Hillary Clinton. It's it's easily shareable. <laughs> it's a it's a thing that you could take pictures of and send to people or fax an image over. I mean, the other thing that I'm hearing, which is also, I just think, so important for for putting into context the work that you do put into the world, is that you are educating yourself politically yes. in this really strenuous way. Which is incredibly important because people ask, where do your jokes come from? And it's like, it comes from where all thoughts come from. Like, you fill your brain full of stuff, and hopefully it's healthy stuff. It's thoughtful stuff. It's stuff that challenges you. And then that's when your brain starts thinking about the things you're consuming, you know? And I think I was frustrated because I wasn't doing anything more critical with my art, but at the same time, I needed to, you know, feed myself the fuel I needed to, to be able to even be capable of doing that. Do you know what I mean? I needed to understand what it is I wanted to talk about. 
So at this point, you know, I'm like 19, I'm 20 at this point. And the most important thing that happened in DC was I saw Paul Mooney do stand up um, at the DC Improv. Paul Mooney, who died last year, I believe, um, was definitely one of my biggest comedic heroes. He wrote for Richard Pryor. He talked about race in a way that was so sharp and painful and critical and courageous. And it's not to say he was perfect. And it's not to say that everything in his act is stuff I appreciated or thought aged well to, for me to be even polite. Um, you know, but it, it, what I did see was a black man in front of mostly black audiences making his people laugh in a way they probably hadn't laughed in a long time. Like, Oh, that's interesting. From the gut. Something mm. that resonated with their experience on such a personal level that to say it was just a stand-up show to me felt like it was minimizing the experience because it, it felt like I've never had like a, a, a religious experience that people have in church and that was the closest thing I had gotten to one. It was wow. being in that audience and laughing so hard for, and he went long. I think the wait staff must have hated him, but he went like two and a half, three hours. And by the time you know, by the next morning, I just remember being sore. Like I'd never laughed that hard. It was, it, it, and I still don't think I've laughed that hard at a standup the way I laughed at, at that Mooney set because everything was so new. And the fact that he talked about making white people uncomfortable and you knew that like there were enough white audiences he had played where he didn't give a shit. He was going to do what he was going to do. And I, I got his album and I heard his album and even on his first album, Race, you see, you know, he talks about how white people can't take it. And all of a sudden, a white person walks out of the audience during the taping of his album. Wow. Like, this is like a level of in incredible um, courage. And just, you know, all he was doing was speaking the truth. And so the things I learned there is you're allowed to speak truth and truth can be funny and you don't need to be funny to everybody. the art around you has only ever imagined that the audience is white, right? Yes. And you have grown up in a way where you have understood yourself as a side character, a, a silent side character in the audience who has no sway on anything. Yes. The idea of making the them uncomfortable, of not playing to them, right? And not only not playing to them, but but taking the kind of risk that will make the quote, the quote on the, them, the white members of the audience uncomfortable. That's a huge pathway to walk down. Like that's a, that is a, that is a decidedly different way forward. Oh my, it, it is, it, it is at that point, comedy looked very different to me. It was not the thing I thought it was when I walked into that room. It, it expanded the definition and it allowed for, a level of just uh, like you're in control of your story and you're allowed to make people uncomfortable 
because it's your story. And if they don't like your story, they can leave, but other people will stay. Because there were people that walked out of that that Mooney show I attended, some of them because it was, you know, the white people who were like, this is not what I thought I was getting. I didn't think this what comedy was, you know, and that was interesting. Like, they don't think this is comedy. All of us are thinking this is the greatest thing we've ever heard. The fact that that thing can exist in such a stark way was amazing. Some people left because he went three hours and that's just so long. But like, <laughs> it, it was like this. Oh, I just I. I was so high on the laughter of seeing him do what he did that night. And I carried it with me and it led me to start writing jokes, including like the first joke I ever wrote that I was like truly proud of that worked. And I wrote it in DC and it was not that long after seeing Mooney. It was, it's called, I called it my diamonds joke. Um, It's a joke. So it would have been 2003. It's a joke about, um, I don't, it's funny. It's not on any album. It's it's not on any special. It's I think I posted. It was one of the. It was the first thing I ever posted on the internet of one of my jokes. Um, it's about how I'd gone to a Smithsonian exhibit about diamonds from around the world throughout history, and there was a picture of the Kohinoor and a caption that read, "The Kohinoor is found on the." You know, I'm paraphrasing like on one of the British royal crowns and was found in India in the mid. Like 18, oh, it was just found in India. It wasn't taken from India. It was just found there because we didn't know what diamonds were. We were eating them until the British showed up and taught us that we shouldn't be making diamond biryani, but actually valuing these things. And then it ends with, uh, you know, fuck the British, fuck the Queen of England. The Queen of England is just some old white bitch wearing my grandmother's jewelry. Wow. Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, which, my God. Wait, which, how did that feel delivering that? Oh, it was the best feeling in the world. Yes. Are you kidding me? Like It's the best feeling in the world to hear it even now. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, I, you know, the word, I stopped telling the joke primarily because of the word. The word bitch made me uncomfortable to say it. So I stopped saying it for that reason, to be <laughs> okay, honest. Okay, okay. But, you know, w- but before that, I had no qualms about saying it. And I it was my best joke. And it was the thing I cared about the most. And I just kept thinking those are the kinds of jokes I, I'm supposed to be writing jokes that like are funny and thoughtful and that I care about. I was passionate and it was real passion. It was like, this is unfair, you know? And uh, I remember just, it got, you know, in my set, it got a different type of response than other stuff did. It was different. It was a different kind of laugh. It was a gut, it was a gut laugh that came from people who recognized it. Mm-hmm. That's what, exactly what I was wondering. Did it echo the Paul Mooney laughter? Yes. And it was one of the first times that I had that experience. And, and so that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I started working towards. And when I, when I, I moved to Seattle and at that point it was, cause the thing, the issue was like a lot of what I was trying to do until I really figured it out was trying to imitate Mooney. And the thing is, I am I was not a, a 50, 60 something year old black man who had the experiences of a 50 or 60 something year old black man. So I'm talking about things that are mostly uh, about civil rights or what's happening in the world. But the lens is not really my comedic lens or my personal lens. And it's almost like I ignored the skills I had developed before I became more politically aware and so when I went to Seattle, I was working as an immigrant rights organizer um, for for Pramila Jayapal, who now is a oh amazing a congressperson, but mm-hmm. she was a, still is a friend mentor. And I was doing comedy at night, 
And there was a really rich scene that wasn't like New York where you could get tons of stage time. And I got, I, you know, I was good. Like I was already, I'd been performing for years, just not in front of like real paying audience members. And, you know, I got really good and I started developing an act. And, and I remind it kind of the stage time I had, which wasn't just like once or twice a month, gave me the ability to try to incorporate the joke writing skills I had written, like I'd learned and the kinds of craft I, I knew some, some, uh, you know, I was, I was good enough where I knew how to write a decent joke, but now I was applying the things I knew and care about and, but using pop culture as a way to talk about it or using other means, like how do I get the, 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 the medicine in with, you know, how do I, I use, put you know, the sugar medicine thing, you know, the, yeah. the, I do. And also, but it occurs to me also because what, what this is really is like ta taking the joke that incorporates the laughter and the leaving, right? Like being comfortable with both of those things. Yes. Being comfortable with like, yes, part of this is going to leave the room laughing and part of it is going to make the room leave. And I'm OK with that. If people are going to leave, it's going to be that they leave on a laugh. And it might not be mm. their laugh that they're leaving on. Do you know <laughs> yes. what I mean? They might be laughing on someone else's laugh. They might be yes. leaving on someone else's laugh. And I, and I started to see people walk out of my shows. And I started seeing people get angry and started seeing people say that, uh, you know, I'm an anti-white racist or whatever that means. Okay, wait, tell me about that. You're in Seattle, yeah? Yeah, two thousand in the mid-2000s. But, you know, Seattle is, is a liberal city without challenge. Do exactly. you know what I mean? Yeah, I lived in Seattle, too, for three or four years. And I was like, well, everyone's cool here because nobody mixes here. Right. When you're on a subway in New York and you have your liberal values, you know, it, it becomes harder when you realize that people of color aren't just victims. Right. People of color can also be like oppressive in other ways because everything is in a binary. There's every, there's intersections everywhere. Right. Like you see all sorts of things that are like, you know, I do not feel sympathy for this person. Like, yeah, like, yeah, just because this person's a person of color or is gay or is trans doesn't mean that they're a good person. It means that they should not be disrespected or harmed based on their identity. But they're also like they could be racist or they could be homophobic or they could be, you know, they could be or, or they could be dangerous. All that stuff exists in the world. But when you're in Seattle, and you're only seeing people of color in this abstract way because you don't see that many of them in your actual life, like that's going to change how you, you see the world. Like, can you, will, your, will your, your standards, will your values hold under challenge? And New York is challenge. Yes. I used to call it being everybody's favorite puppy. Yes. Like when I lived in Seattle, I felt like I was all my white friends' favorite puppy because they had no idea how complicated the how many different kinds of people of color there were in the world and also exactly what you were saying that we're not all likable and we are not all deserving of cuddles and nor do we need them and nor are we actual like no nor do we suddenly come to life because we are given them right it was a really it was a tough place for me in that sense yes partly because i was young and i didn't know how to i didn't know how to confront that dynamic yeah. Um, and partly because Seattle it was structured in such a way that it, it made the daily living made that that pretty hard to confront. It, I mean, the, the where are you from questions in Seattle? I mean, it rivals what I experienced in Maine. Do you know what I mean? It was it was different. It looked mm -hmm. different. Mm -hmm. And uh, but I still s stood out in a way I didn't like, you know, which is which is very bizarre. Um, also, everyone just assumed I worked for Microsoft, which was always <laughs> annoying. <laughs> um, 
but like, yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I was, I was developing an audience. I got discovered in Seattle. My standup was validated in, in this way that I didn't expect. I made the HBO comedy festival. I was on Jimmy Kimmel live. I got a manager all while I was an immigrant rights organizer doing it as a hobby. Um, and I still didn't trust it because again, we live in a world at this point, Mindy Kaling existed on the office. Aziz existed, but he just started. There still weren't enough examples that there were, there was space for me because not only was I brown, I was doing this thing that alienated people. It's like usually the people that break through aren't the ones that alienate and do challenging stuff, right? Like usually it's people that fit in, you know, even you look at Cal Penn's career, like Cal gets more interesting as he's given more options, right? But his initial stuff is, you know, uh, you're talking about like from Van Wilder and stuff. He's just trying to get work. Same thing with all my friends who were actors of that era, you know, whether it's Ajay Naidu or Sakina Joffrey or Asif Manvi, like they're all kind of victims of the same thing. Like you're, you're trying to just get work. Um, so I didn't see, I ended up going to London. I got a master's uh, at the London School of Economics. There was a human rights master's program. And I still had this idea that stand-up wasn't a real thing. And I was going to become an immigrant rights organizer or do something in international human rights. And I, I didn't trust stand up and I stayed away from it. I didn't do much performing when I was in London that year. I focused on being in grad school. And strangely enough, the thing that it was just like kind of like when I was in D.C. and I was working for Hillary Clinton, but that's not the most important thing that happened. The most important thing that happened that year in London wasn't necessarily what I learned, which was all incredible and still does stay with me and, and does, you know, uh, inform some of how I view the world for sure. It was a friend of mine, Bernard Keenan. I remember um, he was dating my friend Sarah and he knew I loved stand up and he introduced me to a comic named Stuart Lee. And he said, look up his stuff on YouTube. And I watched Stuart Lee. And it, that was the fourth epiphany. Okay, you're going to have to, I, I am sad. I'm sorry to tell you, I don't know Stuart Lee. Most people don't. Um, and, and in the UK, he's still kind of a, a kind of a, he's, he's popular depending on who you are. He's very much a, how do I just write it? He's a, he's a long form stand-up comic. He's not worried about the, he, he, he's a funny joke writer. He knows how to tell jokes, but mm -hmm. everything is so well-worded, almost professorial. And I recognize the style. I'm like, this is like what I am doing, but better and the next level I hope to one day reach. So it sounds, when you're telling me about it, it sounds like he's taking up a lot of space. He's taking his time. He's taking up space. Yes. He's, he's very like well-written. He's very thoughtful. He's not worried about them not laughing. He's playing with silence in a way I had never seen. Silence to a stand-up comic is terrifying. It could be useful as like, you know, pregnant pause. You're making, uh, you're setting something up for something big at the end. But to, 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 to trust, to, to build enough trust in an audience where the silence they know or they trust you enough where like they'll let you go with it, you know, and also to have these big moments of silence throughout an hour because you know it's building to something greater at the end. Like all those things, like the amount of craft, confidence, and skill you need to have. Because the thing with him too is he was also a very good improviser, quick off the top of his head, 
he knew how to write jokes. It's not like he he didn't know. It's like once you master the basics, then what's the next level? That's what it felt like. He was doing something that was next level. He was doing like I remember I I wanted to write a joke about political correctness and how it was used improperly and you know just just kind of dig into what people meant when they meant political correctness and i'd been struggling with trying to get this joke and it was it was like two lines in and then i i saw his stand up like my friend suggested he had basically done that bit except 40 levels past anything i could have imagined Oof. and i'm like oh my god like he's literally like oh my god you're the comic i hope to become and i didn't know you existed or anybody like this existed he was he was talking in a way like it, it wasn't just the 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 material that was challenging you know because he did talk about like challenging political things things that would make people uncomfortable it wasn't all he did but certainly the content you know that was uncomfortable i was like how are you pulling this off also as a white dude also as someone who speaks in a way that is so like almost formal like very like you know the character he basically plays is like an overeducated liberal who looks down on people, right? I 100% missed the white part. Yeah, yeah. That's that's another part that was kind of, you know... Can we go back to that? Yeah. What what was that like? I mean, it was was weird because, you know, he was... To see white people talk about race in a righteous way that still isn't, like, completely, um, like, missing the point. Or narcissistic. Narcissistic. Like, he, he... even when there are moments where he's talking about being the good white guy, he's very aware of it. Like, there's just a lot of things that he's doing that is very, you know, he's 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 definitely pushing boundaries while also like pressing buttons that might make people uncomfortable, but knowing exactly how to play the line in a way that, you know, um, that is wild. Yeah, I'm just I'm like blown away. Like the he has this bit about, um, you know. I don't even I don't want to even butcher this stuff, but that he talks about Islamophobia in a way that is so beautiful and 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 well done. He talks of political correctness in a way I'd never heard before. He's talking about, I mean, terrorism. He has this bit of comparing the IRA, you know, because he's British, he talks about them as the gentleman terrorists. <sighs> Basically saying, like, viewing them in this way that we, this is like white terrorism in a way that we understand and respect, right? Uh Uh-huh. Brilliant. Like, the stuff, the stuff he's doing, and he's not rushing, you know, he's painfully slow, and he's aware that he's annoying the audience, and he still pushes further. He's testing our limits. And each one of his specials, you see him try, like, a different skill. Like, in this special, I'm going to go into the audience, and I'm going to interact with the audience. And in this special, I'm going to try to hide a joke this way or that way, or I'm going to use music or I'm going to use like, he's just furthering the form every single time. And I'm watching this and I'm like, you know, it's one thing to alienate people because of the content, not being their cup of tea. It's another thing to not only have content that people might not agree with that might bother audiences, but do it in a way that people don't even think it's stand up. Like where you're intentionally bombing, where you're choosing <laughs> not to make people laugh in this moment. Yeah. And that is part of the joke. You're, in essence, telling us the same thing, how you married a political life and an understanding of how systems were working 
with the ability to step outside of them and trust yourself both enough to make an audience laugh and lose the ones that weren't going to in the first place. I mean, once I saw him, it challenged it further because there might be people who would love what I say, but like might not like, I mean, because after that, I, I started writing exactly the way I wanted. Like with more setup, with longer stories, with little like that first album I released, like the, the Stuart Lee influence is there throughout, like a joke not working, but being a callback towards the end, like explaining the joke as the joke. There's all these things that like I saw him do that he had picked up from other places and, and turned into his own. And this was the art form of stand-up, the writing of stand-up. Stand-up isn't what you think it is. It can be anything you want it to be. You are given a microphone and a stage, and that's it. Who is to say this is what a joke looks like? Who is to say this is what laughter it looks like and is this is the laughter that's legitimate? I remember when Hannah Gatsby's special came out. She got so much crap from comics saying, this isn't comedy. It's a, it's a one-person show. This isn't comedy. Because they almost felt challenged that as if their art form somehow is lesser or what they do is lesser because what's popular as stand-up is this you know, woman talking about her life experiences with tragedy and comedy together. And, and, it's, and, and I had seen that with Stuart Lee. It's like, no, comedy is everything and anything. You, you, you can't say it's just this, you know? Like, it's it's a setup and it's a punchline. It's a long story. It's an idea. It's a theme. It's 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 all these things. And a comedy for me, and I always loved stand up in an hour. And he his hours were so well built. They weren't just jokes. They were jokes that got you somewhere that had through lines, which I've never been able to fully master. But like they had through lines. They had callbacks. They had callbacks in terms of structure and form, not just in terms of content. If you would have told 14-year-old Hari, who was just having the epiphany of like, I, I, I can do this. If you would have given him epiphany four, what would have happened? It wouldn't have made sense. Just wouldn't have made sense. I mean, I've thought about that. 12-year-old me finds me unbearably unfunny. Do you understand? Like, <laughs> 12-year-old me would watch 40-year-old me and not think this was comedy. He would think this was absolutely awful. Do you know what I mean? I, I, and I get that, you know? Like, I, I understand that. Um, I, 12-year-old me didn't have any other... Uh, there was nothing to indicate this was comedy or this is um, a, a step in the evolution of, like, what art can be. Like, art isn't just entertainment. It was so... Entertainment was entertainment. You didn't necessarily need to like learn something or have to be informed. And you know, what are you doing? I'm not embarrassed by you. I just don't understand what you're doing, <laughs> which I still get. Like 12 year old me exists uh, in, in every audience. Um, and, I, and I get that. But, you know, I, I also know that, I, you know, I was I'm the first to do certain things this way as a South Asian American person in this country. And, you know, every time I have a young comic saying, I do what I do because I was influenced by you. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You know, whether that's like Hassan, Hassan Minaj, you know, has always given me credit for like the role I played in 
his development and like the politi- the politicized aspects of his work. You know, I remember Bowen Yang when I first met him telling me how much Totally Bias meant to him. That's the show I was on with W. Kamau Bell and my pieces on it. And, you know, I forget it's been 10 years. There's a whole generation of people that like saw that show as people of color, as queer people, as people who didn't fit into to, to, you know, who were marginalized and were not represented. That show meant a lot. And I was part of that. You know, young comics who are starting now saying that this work or that work or that thing I said or how I did this is why they do what they do. Um, it makes me feel very old. Um, <laughs> it makes me feel, uh, you know, like I should be more successful based on what I'm hearing. But it also tells me that, you know, like that's good art, right? I, I'm making art that isn't for everybody. And I'm making art that is not necessarily something that if you've never seen comedy before, would you could digest, you know, there has to be some reference to, you know, what this is. I mean, it, I know I'm doing something unique and different. And sometimes it's very frustrating because I'm like, Ugh, like I, I could do something different and it could probably be easier. And I uh, am stubborn in how I want to do this. Well, I just, well, you know what, I just, I want to thank you so deeply for making the art that is not for everyone. I remember taking my son to one of your shows, and when we walked out, we were standing in Times Square, and the look on his face, it was just like, it was like he was lit from within, and I said, what's up, bud? And he said, it was for me. Yeah. yeah. The stories, everything he said, mom, it was for me. And I know for sure he had never had that happen. And I had never, I had never had that happen in that way too. So thank you for making the art that is for us. I mean, the fact that your son was able to enjoy my show, it also speaks to like an evolution of like the fact he exists now that a a South Asian American child who can appreciate the issues I'm talking about also speaks to the fact that you exist. And our generation can parent our kids in a way that is more politicized and not just grateful to be here, but to actually feel like our issues matter. So for him to even understand what I'm saying says a lot about our generation. It says a lot about you. It says a lot about me and where we're at and the contributions we have made to like this next this next wave. It makes me feel really proud of the people I know. Threshold is produced by Jordan Kistner and Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshawood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Special thanks to our hosts at LitHub Radio. You can find more about our show, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website, thisisthresholds.com. Don't forget to rate and review our show at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. We'll see you next week.